Welcome to episode 219 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Bryn Jackson. And I'm Brian Levin. Today we caught up with Patrick Wong. He's a design manager at Lyft. Uh, Bryn and I have gotten a chance to meet him several times over the last couple of years. So it's good to finally get him in the studio to chat about his work at Lyft and how he ended up there today. Before we get into the episode, I want to thank our sponsors for this week. Our first sponsor is Webflow. Webflow is a tool that gives designers the power to bring their visions to life on the web literally making entire websites without having to touch a line of code or being restricted by some crappy template that someone made at some point in time and is probably no longer supported. No, they give you awesome tools to prototype and build production-ready sites. Uh, You don't have to stick to like a static mock-up or using dummy data. You can actually plug in real APIs and build actual websites. And they're gearing up for something big, something big coming out next week. It's called Interactions 2.0. It's not out yet but you can start to get a sneak peek if you go to webflow.com slash ix2. ix2 is going to bring some really crazy upgrades to the way that you can literally build production websites without touching a line of code. That includes things like parallax scrolling, sequence and scroll-based animations, and so much more. We're really excited about it. We've gotten a preview of it. I've seen a demo video of it. Uh, It's absolutely incredible what they're doing to bring animation to the web in a way that is easy to build. Uh, You don't have to touch a line of code uh, and you can ship it whenever you're done. So that's coming up soon. You should go check out what they're they're talking about right now at webflow.com slash ix2. Again, that's webflow.com slash ix2. We're super excited about everything that Webflow is working on. Seriously doing crazy stuff on making it easier to build websites. And IX2 is just going to take that to the next level. Uh, thanks again to Webflow so much for sponsoring the episode. Again, go check them out at webflow.com slash IX2. Thanks once again to Webflow. Next up, Figma. Figma's back and better than ever. In case you don't know, Figma is an interface design tool in the browser. Uh, that lets teams design, present, prototype, and get feedback all in one place. Uh, we use it. We I used love to work it. there. It's really great. Brand used to work there. And they're hiring. And so they you want, should go work there. They want you to help them literally make the future of the design. Okay. They make sh- the future of design tools. You know it's the future because they shipped a pencil tool today. But on top of that, I watched someone stream on Twitter them drawing with the pencil tool like Y'all, this is they just embedded a card on twitter bananas. and i just watched it stream even though there was no video it was just live All updating right, the design we should file. just tell the story because it's fucking nuts so jacob at fat yeah jacob thornton previous tweeted, guest, episode 45 tweeted that he was upset that figma didn't have a pencil tool yes he has been for like years he, he was complaining about that the first time i hung out with him after i joined so uh, which was like almost two years ago the figma team talked about it uh-huh and we're like, okay, we'll so, build a pencil tool. So there's a lot of like context behind this. There was a lot of pushback before because it was kind of hard to do it right. Like what, what's the right amount of curve smoothing and a bunch of other things. Uh, finally, Evan just decided to do it one way or another. And Evan's so, the co-founder. Yeah, Evan's the co-founder and he's the CTO. He's yeah. amazing. Um, super smart dude. Anyway, yeah, he shipped it overnight. He built the pencil tool overnight uh, and then paired with... Figma's new live embeds, which lets them put an embed on places like Twitter. And as the design file updates, the uh, the design on Twitter updates, which is fucking bananas. So I just watched Jacob draw his hilarious drawings with a pencil on Twitter. If you want to work on the future of design tools with this amazing team, they're looking for... Two product designers. A community manager. And a content writer folks on tutorials. Guess what that community manager is going to do? Uh probably what you used to do they're, no they're gonna live on spectrum oh <laughs> yeah figma spectrum is awesome uh that's their community hosted on spectrum which is what we're working on yeah uh they're also looking for two product designers dude their team is so good you should go work with that org and build cool stuff the future, you get to design the future of design the, tools design future of design there's no other chance like it. Go to figma.com slash careers if this sounds like something you're interested in. Oh, uh, and that content writer. I used to have to do the tutorials myself. You should go write them because, yeah, I wasn't good at it. <laughs> they need new ones. Uh, the bar has been set at a place where you can be successful on day one. It will be one. <laughs> to be successful. Just kidding. Your new tutorials were awesome. Uh, again, figma.com slash careers. We love the team. Love the product. Go check it out if you need a new gig. 
And with that, let's get into episode 219, Patrick Wong. Hi, my name is Patrick Wong. Uh, I'm a design manager at Lyft, currently leading our driver UX team, which is the team that's responsible for designing all of our driver-facing uh, products and features. Nice. Cool. Yeah. How long have you been at Lyft? I've uh, been there for a little bit over three years now. That's like a millennia. You're ready to retire, yeah. right? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, I'm like a fossil at this point, I yeah. think. But there's a few people on the team that have been there even longer than I have. Yeah, I can only imagine Lyft's <laughs> changed quite a bit in three years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How big was it when you started? Um, so the design team when I started was just four people. Wow. Which I guess is pretty small given sort of where the company was at at that time. And now we're a lot larger now. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I can't, I can't give <laughs> No, that's fine. Knowledge. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. um, we're bigger than four, yeah. but less than... The company when I joined was like 300 people, and now we're about a little over 2,000 people in just three years. So that can give you a good sense of sort of where the company has grown and and scaled. Yeah. Yeah. So you joined Lyft when it was just four people. No, well, I joined no, the design the team. Design sorry, team. Sorry, no, sorry, sorry, sorry. When the design, <laughs> when the design team was You were one of the co-founders of Lyft. <laughs> you are a co-founder of Lyft. Uh, why, why Lyft? That's a great question. Why Lyft? I know. Thanks. I think for me... <laughs> yeah, I'm good at those. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, Lyft was just a really compelling product. Um, and I think I really resonated with their mission, which was you know, connecting people with their communities, um, and I really wanted to work on a product that sort of had a very tangible real-world impact. And for me, Lyft was at a really exciting point in time where, you know, people were asking me, you know, are you, are you sure you want to go at Lyft? Like, work at, are you sure you want to go work at Lyft? You know, are they going to survive? And, you know, at mm-hmm. that time, it was really uncertain sort of the future of Lyft. And sort of now to look back on that is kind of interesting to see where that has really progressed no risk time. no reward man yeah it was a, it was a bit of a risk but i think uh they had a lot going on at that time that i was really excited about yeah i'm curious about how people evaluate risk when joining startups particularly because there is a risk factor of are you sure you don't want to take the safe path and go with like the established winners big Facebook companies. will give you a big check yeah exactly <laughs> like it does take a certain amount of risk to say I want to do something smaller and for reason X Y or Z curious how you thought about that particular risk yeah that's a great question I think Thanks. for me um, it was always about like the impact and the ownership and I felt mm. like going into a smaller team yep. working on a yep. product that was sort of rapidly growing I think for me was what was compelling about it. So it wasn't really about, you know, I want to collect this fat paycheck or, Mm. you know, come up really big. It was, you know, I'm going to take this risk and sort of do my best work here and sort of see where I can take this thing. Yeah, I think a lot of people get into startups for like the get rich quick stuff or they'll, which is insane to me. Turns out startups (laughs) are like the worst idea. Get rich slowly or get slightly richer very, very slowly. But impact is like one of the biggest things that you get at a startup is you you are building the product you're like the whole thing day in and day out i think that's something people don't really think about when they're like evaluating Mm -hmm. totally and i think aside from the impact i think team is really important Mm -hmm. too um and i think that was another thing that sort of sold me was you know my manager frank at the time was you know really selling me on the role in the company it's frank and you frank you yeah he's he's currently the head of a design at lyft and um you know he just really showed a lot of passion for this company and i had really good conversations with him leading up to it and you know i think that's really important too is finding a place where you really sort of vibe with the people that you're going to be working with you know day in day out hmm. and so what did you start doing when you joined three years ago oh man what did i start doing all the things my first i think my first project that lived it was like the first week or second week there i was sort of tasked with hey we have this mode selector in the app it's sort of the piece of ui that allows you to select the different ride types yeah um and they're like we kind of need to redesign this we haven't really taken a look at it in a while, we, we just launched Liftline, which is a new product. And 
you know, the UI that we have today isn't really scalable. There's issues with discoverability of the mode. So they really wanted me to sort of take a look at that. Um, so I started doing explorations probably on my third or fourth day, which was a, a change for me having yeah. worked at places where, you know, you probably spend the first two weeks just onboarding yeah, your yeah, laptop yeah. and all that. Um, and then I think by the second week, I was already doing design reviews and crits with our CEO, which was also a little bit crazy for me to, to think about that and grasp it. But I think, you know, at that time, it was a very small team and company where, you know, there wasn't really that sense of hierarchy or, oh, this person is somebody that's, you know, intimidating to talk to. It was more just everybody was in a room sort of working on the same thing together. What were some of the biggest challenges in that? the early days with just four designers? Ooh, yeah, there were a lot of challenges. Um, I think the big challenges were really prioritizing all the needs of the business with our available resources. So as you can imagine, you know, three years ago was right around that point where Lyft started to take off and get a little bit more popular, which meant we were doing all kinds of things, which meant the four designers on the team were juggling several projects at once so it was it was a bit of a challenge to figure out how do we prioritize our energy and our time hmm. and really focus did you have any helpful ways to like eliminate things that sounded appealing to work on but realized maybe weren't that impactful on the underlying business like how did you sort through this zillion things you could be doing to come up with the f- things that the four of you were actually going to tackle i think the way we did that was we started to do user research. So we didn't have a researcher at the time, but Mm. it was important for us as a design team to really talk to our drivers, our riders, and sort of really understand what their most important needs were at that time. And we sort of prioritized the work that way. So there's definitely things like, you know, internal tools or or other projects that needed design help that we just really didn't get to because uh, in terms of impact on, on who's using our product, that wasn't sort of the highest priority. Okay. Yeah. So you started early and yeah. at some point along the way you maybe stopped doing IC work cuz yeah. you're now a design manager. What happened? Yeah. Um so I became a design manager in I think February of 2016, so last year. Um, and it was sort of just a really natural progression. So I had been taking on more responsibility and it got to a point where the only way for me to have more impact was to sort of step back away from the individual projects and sort of have a higher view of sort of what everybody on the team was working on and making an impact sort of at that vantage point. So it was, it was kind of a natural transition. We grew to a point where... We sort of needed leads for each area that we had on the app. And it just so happened that, you know, the driver's side needed more help. And that was something that I got really excited about and, and sort of just took the lead on there. And and then we formalized it. Was management something you'd had on your mind leading up to that? I think for me, it was I wanted a, a challenge. I wanted to do something outside of my comfort zone. I, I don't know if I would necessarily say... I've always had these thoughts of I want to be a manager per se. It was always, how do I have more impact? And once I realized that by managing a team of designers, I can accomplish sort of what I want to, which is have impact on the product and you know get ideas through, that I really realized through management that was sort of... Uh, I don't know what I'm saying. It's kind of a shortcut <laughs> to that like impact, right? Like... Management is an impact multiplier, right? Exactly, yeah. So I think, you know, management allowed me to be a multiplier in terms of the amount of things I could work on at any given moment, mm-hmm. though I didn't necessarily have my hands on at that point. On pixels, yeah. Yeah, yeah. my fingers weren't <laughs> touching the pixels. Do you mm-hmm. miss the pixels? I think there are times where I, I miss kind of tinkering and trying out new design tools and, you know, working on things like that. But I try to scratch those itches outside of work with you know side projects and yeah i kind of like heard that. you described as the the design tool guy internally yeah i definitely <laughs> evangelized design uh, tools yeah. um it started I know with, at some point it was principal 
We started with Pixate first okay. was a big one, and then we started to look at Principle, and now Principle is sort of the most widely used mm. tool. You know, there's people also using Framer, uh, some Facebook people using Origami. So we have a nice mix of different tools that are being used on the team. What's your hot take on the state of design tools in October <laughs> 15th, 2017? You're really setting him up if he doesn't have a hot take. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're in a really exciting time for design tools. Um, it seems like there's something new coming up every single week, it almost feels like. Or, um, you know, a lot of people are solving sort of problems that are impacting probably most teams, you know, thinking about design systems and scale to things like developer handoff and how do you sort of create a tool that can prototype but also be useful as an output for the developers, I think is an interesting area that I've seen a lot of progress on. Well, that's kind of the point of prototypes, right, is to communicate what it's supposed to be to a developer. Sometimes. Sometimes it's also just like communicating an idea to a stakeholder, which could be the CEO, right? I mean... Yeah, it's a communication tool, right? Yeah, yeah. That's fair. Which I think that's what's interesting about where we are with tools today is a lot of them are really great for communicating ideas to stakeholders. But when you give them to your engineer, they it's still sort of just a, a video to them, even if it's interactive. Mm-hmm. And I think we're just probably like not too far away from a tool that will add, you know, true developer handoff and integration with, yeah. their, with their tools. Yeah, I think the they are communication tools, which is also the problem is that they don't communicate tri- that specifically. Yeah. They communicate broadly or like ideal scenarios. And I think there's a lot more underlying context and rules that have to be applied when you're actually building the thing that it's hard to communicate with a prototype for what it's worth. Working primarily as engineers for the past few months, like I'm a little sad about where design tools are like way falling short of where developer tools are at. Developer tools are fantastic. For the most part, yeah. There's so much specificity. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except except when they don't work and you want to pull your hair out and die. (laughs) Just write better code, Brian. (laughs) I can't. (laughs) Help. Uh, Yeah, so what's your favorite prototyping tool if you had to, to recommend one today to someone just getting into design? Ooh, that's a... Loaded it's question. Loaded. I, know. <laughs> I know. Don't mess this one up. Be a corporate shill. Do this thing. <laughs> <laughs> this is an unsponsored endorsement. Uh, it's it's that's tricky. Um, I think for me, really it's a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I have one tool. I think for me, it's what is what needs to be accomplished. What are we trying to create, and sort of selecting the tool based off of that. So I think for something quick and dirty, but still highly interactive. I think Principle does a pretty good job of that. It's got a low barrier to entry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, designers sort of understand that UI, I think, sort of intuitively based on, you know, using prior design tools like After Effects and things like I that with Daniel's, timelines. Daniel's done a great job with it. Oh, yeah. He's, I think, is he still one, There's one two team people person? Now. Oh, yeah. team? Wow. That's still blows my mind. It's, incre- it's crazy. Like how far <laughs> he got as a solo dev designer. That's nuts. That's crazy. I can hardly do anything by myself. <laughs> <laughs> Takes a team. Yeah. Um, and then I think for like higher fidelity things where, you know, you need to use math or actual code. I think Framer's doing a really, yeah. really great job. Framer there. has so much control. Yeah. And their new design sort of mode is mm. kind of blowing my mind. I Interesting. think they're going in a really good direction in mm. terms of bridging that gap between a design tool and a you know, a prototyping tool that provides value for, for both designers and engineers. It seems like most design tools end up building prototyping on later, whereas they started with prototyping and moved backwards from it, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Moving back up the flow. Yeah. Watching every, like, things from a bird's eye view, it's like everyone's moving towards the same goal with very different starting points and, like, maybe coming at it from opposite sides. Uh, and then there's people like... Uh, Adam Morris, who's sort of starting in the middle of everything. He's like, yep. Adam and it's Jackson gonna be are building design and, and code and design system all yeah. at the same time. And yeah, it's nuts. Thinking about it, that's kind of where I'd want it to be. Mm-hmm. Like instead of communicating what the technical details are, like it actually is the technical details, mm-hmm. which is yes. compelling. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, we're talking about compositor. Compositor, yeah. Right, yeah, I've seen that stuff. That, yeah, yeah. I love what they're doing. That stuff's nuts. Yeah. 
so we we got off on a tangent from from the management side of things. Yeah. Uh, but I'm curious how that transition went for you. You know, as I talk to a lot of people that are thinking of making that same transition, it seems like there's a lot of pros and cons that people have to weigh in their minds about. What does this mean for uh, my portfolio as a craftsperson who does design? Or do we need portfolios? Yeah, of course. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> uh, what is this? How does this impact my career long term? How does this like reflect on on my ability to impact a, a company or direction? I don't know. There's like there's different things that people consider, and I'm curious how that went for you. Uh, certainly during the transition period. Yeah, sort of like what are the what were the considerations yeah. to transitioning? There we go. Um, yeah, I think when I made the transition, it was it was a little bit tricky to to sort of come to terms with, hey, I'm, I might not get to use these design tools day to day and I, you know, might have to not touch these pixels anymore. And um, But I think a lot of that went away when I sort of just took the role and, and started to understand that my output wasn't necessarily things that I create anymore, but it was actually what my team created. And being able to see it sort of from that viewpoint of instead of working on three projects, I'm now working on 12 projects per se. Um, and so for me, that was really exciting. Okay. How did it go? Like, how's it been actually making that leap and now working on so many more projects? It's been great. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's been terrible, Brian. <laughs> Tell me the hardest part. The hardest part. I think, you know, when I first became a manager, there was this sort of transition period where. I was still actually doing IC work, so I had one project that I was still working on and responsible for, but then I was also starting to manage a team, and that period of time was pretty challenging. I think trying to do IC work and managing a team, you sort of realize how different those two worlds are, and you know, managing is a completely different brain, a completely different sort of craft from working on actual projects and, and and doing the actual design. And so I think that period of time, I really realized, okay, I need to hurry up and finish this project. <laughs> Be done, yeah. So that I can transition fully into, uh, you know, the management aspects of the role. So a year and a half isn't crazy long, but if you, given a year and a half of of learnings now, if you could go back a year and a half and say to yourself during this transition period, do this thing and it's going to make your life a whole lot easier, like uh, overcoming maybe some of the earlier hurdles. What would that advice be? That's a good question. Don't have that Thank. one written He does down. this semi-professionally. <laughs> <laughs> or more broadly, advice, what advice, to, would you advice to new managers. Hmm. I see is making the transition into management. I would say the advice I would give to people transitioning is to find a good mentor. Um, I think unlike individual contribution, there's not a whole lot of resources for, for management or design management in particular out there. Um, you know, there's a lot of management books and leadership training that you can do, but there's not really like a manual of here's how to be a design manager. Learn right? the new management tool. <laughs> right. There's not like a tutorial <laughs> yeah. or video tutorial on how to how to be a design manager. Be pretty cool. How do I grade into management? <laughs> so I think what I did was I really reached out to to my manager, Frank, who's been a really good mentor of mine, um, and just sort of picked his brain on, hey, you know, when you transition to management, what advice would you have for someone like me who's sort of getting into it? And I think learning from other people's story really helps sort of kickstart your learning and, and sort of shorten that feedback loop of, hey, here's what I should do, and here are maybe things I can avoid. Sure. Did you read books about management? I've read a few. I'm one of those people that <laughs> buys a ton of professional books. They are sitting on my shelf. And they're and sitting on my shelf. They look really nice. <laughs> I'm always like, I think this will make me smarter, and I buy it, and then I never read it. Yeah. But I've I, read a couple. I have that same problem, man. <laughs> I've got like an overflowing bookshelf, and I'm like, well, could play Overwatch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So not too deep on the, the book side. Management books just sound like yeah. very unappealing. Yeah. 
I'm going to read about management now. There probably are some good <laughs> ones, though. It's more just like working with people. Right? Don't you think? I don't know. I don't know either. I haven't read any. I'm I'm sure statistically there are. Yeah. <laughs> there has to be at least a couple good ones. Certainly. The one I read that I enjoyed was um, called High Output Management. That's the one that I always hear. Yeah. Yeah. Andy Grove. Yeah. Ex-CEO of... IBM. IBM. Or Intel. Intel, Intel I think. One of those. <laughs> oh, no. Um, and there's some really practical stuff in that book. So I, I found that to be a useful framework on how to think about things. But I find that management and leadership books are sort of like cookbooks where it kind of teaches you how to do some things, but really you're not going to learn until you actually do it. Hmm. Um, so I think the experience is sort of more important than reading the books, but I found the books really helpful in terms of helping you think in a certain way about problems that people have already solved before around management. Yeah. Being told how to do it is different than actually knowing how to do it, right? Like, right. Yeah. I know how to make an iOS app. I read a tutorial once. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so that was the transition period, uh, mm. finding a mentor, stopping your IC project. Now fast forward a year and a half. Uh, what's the biggest thing on your mind today in terms of managing a team or, or day-to-day challenges? Yeah, the biggest thing today is definitely scaling our team and hiring. We're going through this really crazy rapid growth phase right now where... Yeah, you've picked up a bunch of our friends recently. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of the plan. <laughs> um and we're 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 gonna probably double the team soon in a, in a short period of time. So that's what I'm thinking about day in and day out is is how do we really scale our existing processes and and culture uh, so that we don't lose what's good overnight when yeah. we add a lot of new people to the mix. What are some ways to gear up for a big transition like that? How do you even prepare for a team doubling? Oh yeah, I hire good know. managers. <laughs> <laughs> hire good managers. Give a lot of attention to hiring. So. Just as you would be very detail-oriented with the design project, we really have to be very thorough in our search for the people that we add to the team because while we're, while we're hiring rapidly, it's still really important to make sure that you aren't just hiring for the sake of adding heads. Yeah, because it sounds cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you kind of get to the point where you're like, oh, I want to just hire all of my friends. <laughs> but then you have to realize like that this idea. is a company and there's yeah, a, yeah. a business and... You know, you have to find a need for them too. <laughs> sure. I which agree. That's what I'm working on doing. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's back up. All right. To the beginning. Where are you from? The beginning. The beginning. I'm from the Bay Area, actually. Hmm. Hmm. Native. One of the few, I think, out <laughs> very, here. Very in few. Yeah. One of eight. <laughs> one, of, one of eight. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, what part? Uh, I'm from the East Bay. I'm from. A small little town called Castro Valley. Um, nothing too exciting going on there, to be honest. <laughs> no, it was a great. It was a great little town. Have yeah. you lived around here your whole life? I actually went to college in Southern California, so I did a brief stint in SoCal before coming back up here. But you've been a California boy. Oh yeah, basically your whole life. I'm just a <laughs> California born. Yeah, raised. You ever gonna leave? Maybe thinking about it. I've thought about it, but I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> no, I'm happy retired. here. <laughs> I'm pretty happy here. I don't know. It seems like uh, people are always interested to try the East Coast life for a while. New York or something like that. New York is appealing. Uh-huh. Except for the snow and the blizzards. And yeah, don't go now. <laughs> <laughs> I think living in New York from like spring to a summer yeah. could be. Go in March. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Okay. When did you first get into like creative endeavors? Is that always a thing? This is an an interesting question for me because it wasn't like I was going to go to college for design. You know, at that time, that wasn't really a a path that was clear. And for me, design was never really something that I viewed as as like a career, like, oh, I'm going Mm -hmm. to do this to make a living. It was just always really a hobby for me. Uh, I remember as a kid, I think I was like in middle school, or maybe it was high school, my uncle was like the IT guy at Macromedia. Um, and so he would, every holiday season, he would give us new copies of Dreamweaver. <laughs> and 
I the would, best Christmas present. Yeah, and I would use that and yeah. start to tinker and build little websites and things. And, you know, it kind of, it was always one something that I just did on the side and it became a career eventually, but it was never something that I sought out to do as hmm. a career path. What did you make as a kid with your oh God. copies of Dreamweaver? GeoCity sites. So I, yeah. <laughs> I had a blog. Mm-hmm. Um, Pretty embarrassing blog. Is it still up? No, I've tried to search for it because <laughs> I really want to see it. it. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> but yeah, I, I you know I designed. There was like a little header and like I had like a side nav and you know I made like a little logo. I think I was using some sort of like graffiti looking typeface, mm-hmm. <laughs> like uh-huh. spray paint typeface. Uh-huh. Um, What'd you write about? No, you know feelings and <laughs> teenage days and that type of thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh wow. Putting that kind of stuff on the internet's yeah, old move. It's deep dark web out there. Maybe it's good that we can't find it. Yeah, for good for me. <laughs> I think it would be entertaining if we could find that somehow. <laughs> yeah. Huh. And did you ever like transition to paid work? Did you ever freelance? Like realize this is something you can make money doing? Yeah. So right out of college. My very first job that I ever had was actually a finance job. So I graduated from college with an econ degree Hmm. and it was nothing, it was never something that I was like passionate about. It was sort of just like, you know, I had strict kind of traditional Asian parents and they were like, hey, you know, you got to do this and go make a living. And so I, I got one of these jobs and I was miserable there. Every single day I was just sort of questioning, like, what what am I doing with my life? Am I really going to do this the rest of my life? And that's when I started to tinker more with, hey, maybe this design thing, building websites, could sort of become a real career path. And I reached out to one of my friends at the time. He was a, a software developer, and I picked his brain. I'm like, hey, I'm kind of into building these websites, but I'm more into sort of the creative aspects of it. Is there is there some way to get work out of this? Yeah. And he was like, yeah, actually, I have a couple friends that need help with some projects. And that's how I kind of got my first freelance job. Um, and the rest is kind of history from there. I just slowly had projects and I would go to my day job, leave at like 6 p.m., go home, and I would just work on like client work and design until like midnight or 1 a.m. every single day for, I don't know, like, two, three years straight. Yeah. Um, and eventually it got to a point where I was like, oh, actually making enough money here where I can just quit this day job and see what happens. And so that's kind of what I did. And my parents freaked out. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, what are you doing? Um, but it's crazy to think back about like how far I've come from those sort of beginnings where you know, at this first day job, I sat <laughs> I sat in front of this conference room that the CEO of that company would use for all of his important meetings with, with um, clients and things that they were getting contracts on. And this was the finance job. And he would always ask me, hey, can you grab me a cup of ice for this meeting? And like, I was just this guy that sat outside of the conference room and I'd have to go to the kitchen and grab him this cup of ice like once a week. Oh, God. And that was the most sort of, that, I think that was the lowest point as a working professional I've ever had. And I, I like to think back to ice that. Boy. Like, at least I'm not <laughs> the ice guy anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, that wouldn't be a good title. Yeah. <laughs> I ice, mean, Iceman. Yeah, that's a superhero. That's actually pretty sick. <laughs> Shit, you could have you could have pivoted a you whole different direction. Yeah, I think there's a startup idea there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> we will hand deliver cups of ice to your CEO. <laughs> Artisanal. Uh, so your parents flipped out. What did you have to do to convince them that you weren't crazy? I think the way I convinced them was I just didn't come back home. <laughs> <laughs> I abandoned them. I didn't have to move back in, so I was doing all right. Yeah, like I was still in Southern California at this time, and I think for me, going back home and having to move back in with them would have been a, a sign of defeat. And so I was really, really determined and committed to to making it work. And 
you know, worked my butt off to, to make it happen. Okay. Yeah. And so you quit and you just started freelancing full time? Yeah. I was doing a mix of, you know, design and UI work, but also a lot of front end development. Okay. So I was building a lot of CMS systems using Drupal. I don't know if you yeah. guys know Drupal. Yeah. Um, and so kind of did this mix of, you know, a little bit of technical, a little bit of UI, tried to do illustrations and things, but that's not my forte. Uh-huh. <laughs> I feel you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. How long did you do that for? That was a few years. And then after that, I started to work on, I tried to get my own product idea off of the ground. It now sort of defunct, but it was this food community called Grub Snapper. And it was kind of like dribble for food bloggers and photographers. Oh, shit. Yeah. So Instagram, kind of. So, yeah, almost <laughs> Instagram. It was a little bit before Pinterest had come out. So yeah, it, was, yeah. it had this UI that I made that similar to dribble in a lot of senses, but it you know, had some cards of beautiful food imagery mm. and detail views with you know, the ability to comment. So I sort of built out this whole thing and was trying to build this food community um, and kind of wearing all the hats of designing and developing and you know, marketing and acquiring users and kind of doing everything at once. Yeah, How'd it go? It was pretty good. There was definitely people using the product. And I remember for me the first time users started to sign up without me reaching out to them because in the beginning I would just cold email like thousands of these bloggers every single day until people would sign up. And at some point people just started signing up on their own and I was like, hey, this is, this could be, could be something, could be something. But? Then I, I think I realized I was doing a lot of things and I wasn't energized by all of them. I think for me, I really loved the, design aspect of things and I was like hey I'm gonna start to search for a role that's solely focused on design okay and just sort of went from there so where'd you end up so I ended up interviewing at a ton of places but I landed at uh Salesforce um was this still in Southern California or how do you move I moved up for this job so finished the freelancing finished working on my product and moved back to San Francisco. I actually moved back into my parents' place temporarily. Oh, no, it happened. <laughs> temporarily until I like, found an apartment. You fucked up, man. <laughs> <laughs> they were happy to see me. <laughs> or so uh, they said. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and then started working at Salesforce. I was working on enterprise software. and Salesforce? Yeah. Why Salesforce? I mean, they do a ton of stuff. They do a ton of stuff. I think I was interested in them because they had a larger team and they've been a company that was around for a while and they were working on some interesting things around design systems at the time. And I think for me, I was interested to sort of move away from sort of working as this, you know, lone wolf freelancer to to being a part of a greater team and, you know, learning how big organization, big organizations work. Yeah. Salesforce certainly is that. Yeah, they're a huge company, yeah. Got this giant skyscraper. Yeah. Now, now they it's have. right out my window. Yeah. I and think so I can did, see it right now. What'd you work on there? Well, you can't see it right now. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're lying. <laughs> Frosted glass. Yeah. Um, so when I was there, I worked on a few products. When I started, I was working on this product called Chatter, which was sort of like their enterprise version of Facebook. Mm-hmm. And this was before Facebook had Workplace. That's communities um, cloud now or something like that, or um, it's sort of evolved into community stuff later on, I think. Mm. Um, but at the time, it was sort of all the rage. It was you yeah. know chatter, and we're trying to sell Facebook, you know, to businesses or something similar to that. Uh, so I worked on that for a little bit, and then I transitioned over to our service products, and then led the design of our mobile communities product. So this was like a product that basically allows companies to spin up their own self-service support community huh yeah <laughs> so you know the the landscape that Brynn and i are in every day <laughs> a little bit a little yeah. bit this was more like support tickets and things i don't know is that yeah. something you guys are getting into eventually uh yeah i think that's Uh-oh. one use case people are finding for Spectrum. that's cool what'd you do after that after that how long were you there uh i was there for two years 
Okay. Yeah. Um, I also worked on their like agent console, which is like this giant tool that all the people in the call centers for major companies that are using Salesforce kind of use. Um, so I designed a bunch of features there. It's really interesting stuff. You you get to think about sort of like workflows and, you know, how do you make things more efficient because mm-hmm. every task that you make quicker, you know, saves these companies a, a ton of money. Um, yeah, and then from there I went to Lyft. So one of the reasons that you had joined Salesforce was because you wanted to learn what it was like working and designing at a big company. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> what was it like working and designing at a big company? Did you like it? I think I liked it, yeah. It It's different because um, you sort of learn to think about more how the organization impacts your work and the importance of working with cross-functional stakeholders to get alignment on certain things. Whereas when you're kind of freelancing or working on your own, you know, there's not really a lot of ton of process or hoops you have to jump through to get things done. And I think that's something I definitely learned at a larger company is, you know, how do you advocate for your work both with your cross-functional partners, but also internally, even on a large design team that becomes necessary is, you know, getting visibility for your work and partnering with other people on the design team to accomplish sort of that common goal. And I think one of the other interesting things was that you actually ended up moving from the freelance world to that. Yeah. Which is like so you went opposite. From the smallest team to yeah, like yeah, the biggest yeah. team. Yeah, I was like, I'm just going to dive in and kind of see what happens. So on the like craft and process side, was there anything surprising to you about making the switch to a big company with a team and more established processes? That's interesting because even though the team is big and sort of established, I find, I found that most people sort of run their own processes when it comes to tooling. (laughs) I I think Uh most, most of Silicon Valley is kind of held together by like duct tape, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It seems like a lot of design teams, like especially design teams, it feels like are hard to implement process in because everyone on the team is so opinionated about their workflow being like the best one or something. Right. Or, Or like they always want to try new things. So processes fall apart quickly. Yeah. It's, it can be hard to implement for sure. Is any tricks you've learned? Um, I think it helps to really understand sort of the lay of the land when you join a new company. So how are people already working today and identifying what you can sort of add to that mm-hmm. conversation. Um, when I went there, it was nice because the the product that I transitioned onto, the communities product, was like a brand new team at that time. So I was actually able to just sort of implement the processes in the way that I, I liked, to, liked them to work. And, you know, obviously taking in the input of the other team members that I was working with. But it was very much like each group there sort of ran their own process. And I think that's sort of why Salesforce, the design team, started to think about design systems because it had gotten to a scale where there were all these siloed design teams and no cohesion across any of them and and that realization sort of sparked the the systems work yeah i I think that tends to be a thing where like we've had style guides for years right design systems are like a new take on that thing right like it's it's a little bit broader than that maybe but it's it seems like it's destined to fail the same way but it's hot right now why i mean i think it's a way to force uh consistency and coherence but only if you use it yeah usually it seems like design systems teams have a role of like implementation hand holding implementation cops yeah yeah and then there's like this at least at facebook i know that they walk this line of how much do we play the cop role and make sure that teams are sticking to the mm-hmm. guidelines versus being more like we could save you time if you did it this way because of reason X, Y, and Z. Like more, more, uh, not saying no, but saying like, what about trying this stuff that we've built for you? So right now, as our tools can't talk to each other, though, you have to implement everything twice and then inconsistencies start popping up in the thing, like naturally. And when, once you have to build something more than once, it, it becomes inconsistent immediately. Yeah, which is what teams are working on, right? Like the Airbnb stuff with the 
DLS. Sketch, Sketch React DLS, yeah. Right? To some degree. I don't know. I have opinions. <laughs> I think it would be I, interesting if there was a design tool that almost restricted you from designing anything but things that adhere to the system and there's some I mean, sort of override. But my creativity. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I mean, like in developer tools, you have linting. It tells you when you're doing something dumb. Right. Design tools can't tell you that right now because right. you're drawing pictures. Exactly. Like, if you're trying to create a list view, the tool would be like, "This is this is how how the list views are done." Mm -hmm. I think that could be interesting. And if you deviate, it's like, I don't know. Or talk to you're, Brian. You're designing this. Something. This is how this works in iOS. This is how it works in Android. This is how it works on web. Like just having some context for how lists are supposed to be done. Yeah. Oh, here's gonna be a stack view. Here it's gonna be uh, an activity or whatever. And here it's gonna be a, an ordered list or an unordered list or whatever the fuck. Yeah. Here's what those things have. But it can't know because you're drawing a picture instead of actually like making the thing. So how right. did it work out at Salesforce when the you were there when the systems rolled out or the design system rolled out? I was there when it rolled out. I didn't work on the exact team that was working on it, but But as um, an implementer of it. Yeah. That was interesting too, because I think there the system was really well thought out, but then we were still developing the processes for sort of propagating that across the teams. Yeah. And I think that kind of goes back to what we were just talking about, which is there still isn't really a good way to enforce people to use this system from a design perspective, right? Because a lot of it was tied to the code base, which means a developer could spin something up based off of those patterns, but a designer could still open up Photoshop or whatever at the time and design whatever the hell they want and ruin and, everything <laughs> yeah, and give it to their developer and say hey can you can you build this so i think sort of creating that library is one step but then you know that oversight and sort of the the accountability across teams is something else i think that's interesting to think about yeah i think the accountability is hard which is why i feel like a more effective way is to explain the upsides of using the system and not make it feel like you're throwing all of your designers in a prison. It's like, if you use our system, you'll get to solve these kinds of problems a billion times faster because yeah. it's already been I mean, done. It's removing, and you can actually move on to more interesting things. It's removing all the things that technically don't matter, like nudging things a bunch of times. Yeah, exactly. Like that stuff's appealing. Stop wasting your time pixel nudging so lines. What if shit. you would stop wasting your time using, like drawing pictures of things and actually just building them? Yeah, but we're still a ways away from that, right? No, I know. I, I mean, uh, compositor is like, that's why I'm hyped about it, is you're kind of building the thing, even though you're using design processes. Yeah, sort of, yeah. Yeah, and Adam Morse was actually at yeah, Salesforce he was, he was working yeah, yeah, during yeah. that was, time. Yeah, and <laughs> I was He's wondering. like a design systems guy. That dude, he knows more about CSS than anyone I've ever <laughs> met. I would talk to him and he would just drop some insane knowledge on me that I've never heard before. Mm-hmm, yeah. That's an Adam Morse guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, did you keep up with your front end work when you switched over to Salesforce? Yeah. So I, I used those skills to to prototype a lot of the work that I did. You know, at that time there wasn't really that many prototyping tools quite yet. So it was a lot of, you know, browser based prototypes, you know, hacking things together with jQuery and CSS and a little bit of vanilla JavaScript too here and there. Nice. Yeah. Uh did you find that useful or did that quickly? So the reason I ask is because I did the same thing at Facebook cool. and then it was like, ah, this is probably less effective than just like origami or mm. some other tool that's like tailor-made for that. Mm -hmm. mm, tailor-made, you can tell by the noodles. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah, I think it was it was nice in the sense that I find that when you prototype your work or you sort of display your technical aptitude to like an engineering team, they tend to respect sort of your viewpoint a little bit more mm -hmm. because they see that you can empathize with the world that they're in. And I think building things in code, you know, either, even though it was just a standalone thing that I hacked together, really helped them understand how it could potentially be built, you know, looking at the animations and timing values and even styling. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it was, it, was, it was effective. I mean, even showing consideration for what the system default APIs are going to like do with a thing is 
right. something I found gets you a lot of credibility with engineers. Mm-hmm. Like if you understand how it actually works to some degree, that helps a lot. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just gonna have to fix things over and over and over until it does. Right. Yeah, I think the credibility part stands out the most to me is like just prove that you know what you're talking about like that you actually understand their work and what they're going to have to do and whether or not the thing that you prototyped or coded up is good or not like it's the credibility that you actually have considered the the constraints of the platform and things like that i don't know i go back and forth on i think some details there that's something that people first coming into the industry just don't know to think about like uh which piece like uh understanding how um, let's say stack views work on iOS. Sure. Like that's just not something you think about or how focus works on input fields. That's what I dream about. <laughs> stack views. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I mean, that's the problem with uh, who said this? Like that's why quote unquote unicorn designers don't really exist anymore because there's too many platforms and too many what do you mean they don't? Well, that just means like the the term unicorn means you code and design, right? Uh, yeah, but I think that would these days imply like across platforms like web, iOS, and Android, and that's I don't know how far any one person could get in having like a deep technical. I need to introduce you to Rasmus Anderson. Yeah, so maybe there's like <laughs> a handful of people. Yeah, that could claim oh, and, too. and back up. Like I designed and developed for web, iOS, and Android, mm-hmm. and fuck TV. I don't know. Like, there's too many new platforms. Watch, right? Like, there's so many new it, new things spinning up that keeping up developed that would be... for everything. Yeah, yeah. But arguing over the definition of unicorn doesn't matter. So that's right. That's right. But anyways, I, I feel like that's something to keep in mind for people that are just entering too. Is do I really want to go super broad or? Would it be better to focus on one specific thing, mm. which in most cases just the design side, not the like technical foundation of iOS or something? Do you look for technical designers when you're hiring specifically or not? Do you have an opinion on what it makes for a good designer? I I definitely do. <laughs> <laughs> I no, think... I have no opinions. They're all good. <laughs> I think when it comes to hiring designers, it really matters what the need of the team is Mm -hmm. in the company. So I I wouldn't say there's one size fits all always, but if we're going to... What? (laughs) (laughs) If we're going to generalize... Wear black t-shirts. Black t-shirts, good hair. Mm. (laughs) Uh, Uh Brian's never hired again. (laughs) He's got the black t-shirts, but... (laughs) I would would say I think we do value technical skills. Um, Again, for, you know people who can really build that empathy with the people that they're working with in engineering and sort of building that trust and respect. So I think it's really important to be able to communicate those ideas in a way that they would understand. Do you have designers at Lyft that push production code or is it just a communication tool? Today, not, but it's something that I'm personally interested in Mm -hmm. seeing. Yeah, is that encouraged for people to learn that? I think it would be encouraged. We just haven't really had that precedent set before where designers, you know, committing code. I feel like large companies are one of the few places it could work because there are such strong release processes and QA processes that like it could fit into that mode, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think we've gotten close to doing that. So there's a designer on my team, Zach Cole. I don't know if you guys know him. Yeah, I know Zach. Um, He'll like dig into the production builds and fix all the bugs in the code. For well, he's the an developers. iOS engineer, right? <laughs> he's kind of a front end guy, so he he, okay. he knows some JavaScript and you know he's got CSS chops. Uh, so he'll like fix all the bugs for the developers and just hand them off code and be like, "Hey, I fixed it for you guys. Yeah. Now can you go and make the commits?" Um, so I think we're getting close to designers being able to you know make pull requests and things to, nice. to fix some stuff. I think one of my regrets about leaving Facebook when I did was I hadn't like when I joined I had this goal of committing something <laughs> and I never ended up doing it although it was encouraged well when you have to manage 400 artboards per sketch file you don't have time for that <laughs> ain't no time to commit around you're just here. trying to keep it from crashing <laughs> my sketch file yeah uh-huh <laughs> Ooh, burn I feel like more and more as I dig into engineering I feel like I wasted a lot of my time just doing design work 
like quote unquote design work, just working in design tools. That feels like I wasn't considering as much as I thought I was, and I just didn't know it. I I see what you're saying, and that's why I feel like the role of product designer is just moving higher it's up level stack, right? over, yeah like it seems like there's fewer designers these days nudging pixels like there's enough is that just what we see though like no I'm, like i think we're already seeing people moving up the stack because of from, design systems yeah because of design systems or component libraries sketch libraries figma components like all this kind of stuff that eliminates this day-to-day need of drawing stuff i feel like that's happening more and more and so designers can focus on a different set of problems because i agree with you like all the nudging stuff feels like a waste of time um drawing lines and adjusting type sizes that feels like a waste of time unless Mm -hmm. it's in implementation yes yes uh so you stayed at salesforce for two years Mm -hmm. and ultimately something happened you decided to leave I was ready for a new challenge. Yeah. Uh, specifically, I wanted to go back to working on consumer-facing products. Uh, I wanted to work on mobile apps. And yeah, Lyft fit that bill for me. Did you apply to other places? Oh, yeah. Okay. Tell me I, about that. I applied to a ton of places and you know, was fortunate enough to have a lot of interest there and you know, I was really deliberating on should I should I really work at this you know startup that has an uncertain future in that moment in time, and you know I look back on that decision and I'm I'm just glad that I sort of took that risk. Hmm. What other kinds of places were you applying? Was it all startupy, or did you also consider other big companies? Yeah, definitely big companies. Um, I was looking at places like Dropbox, Apple, Twitter. Dropbox two years ago was a place to be, too. Yeah. Or three years ago. Yeah, it seems like... In that they're, Are they still a place to be now? Or Yeah, I think... Like, uh, it was... I think they've become that. They are definitely more involved in the design conversation in, than they were a year ago. In the Saleo era, though, they were like... Everyone was there. Yeah, like, yeah. all your heroes were at Dropbox, which was, like, crazy. That's true. Yeah. But you ended up deciding on Lyft. Yeah, so I was very close to thinking about going out, going to Twitter. Mm-hmm. And now I look back on that decision. I'm like, oh, I, I think I made the right choice there. Hindsight's 2025. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so at the time, I was really excited about you know Twitter. I enjoy that platform. And I think what sold me was Frank was on a call with me, and I was on vacation at the time, and he caught me at a good point. I was actually in Maui. And I was, I was relaxed on a balcony, <laughs> like looking at a beach and he was convincing me to come work with him. And I'm like, you know what? I think I'm going to do that. Hmm. I think I'm going to do it. And I, and for me, it was joining somewhere where I could be a part of writing the story. And I think for a lot of the bigger companies, you know, they've sort of written their stories already. And I think to get a chance to help lift and take take that design team and that culture in a new direction, I think was also really appealing to me. I feel like that's part of the answer to my next question, but do you have advice for people that are going through similar job hunts? Because we get plenty of people that ask us, like, should I freelance? Should I do startup? Should I do big company? These are like, or agency, I guess, would be a fourth option. Yeah, I would say, one, you have to find a company that you're really passionate about in terms of what they're doing. So their mission or the product, something there I think needs to excite you. The second thing I think is the people. So is the the manager that you're going to have, is the team that you're going to be working with, people that you want to be with day in and day out. And then I think it's the size of the opportunity looking forward. So is this a company that's growing or is it a company that's shrinking? Is it a team that's hiring? Is this company dying? <laughs> right. Are they hiring or are they just filling a role from somebody who left? And I think, you know, joining a growing organization always means you'll have a lot of challenges and opportunities to learn new things. Okay. Yeah. I think I agree. Yeah. Let's talk about side projects. Oh, side projects. Yeah. Because you also do a couple things outside of work. Oh, I do. Yeah. Uh, tell me about Learn Design? Yeah, so Learn Design is something that I started a little while back. And it's essentially 
video-based lessons on design tools or, you know, things that are tactical skills that a designer might need to, you know, be successful. Why'd you start that? I started that because I'm just really passionate about design education. You know, we've interviewed a lot of candidates coming straight out of design school, uh, looking at intern candidates, and I kind of found that the education really helps them think, but it doesn't really provide them with the hard tactical skills to actually get the job done. Hmm. And so I think there's a big gap there in terms of what's available right now. Um, And so my hope is that I can transfer some of my knowledge onto somebody and hopefully they'll, you know, land a a nice design job someday. Ideally at Lyft. (laughs) (laughs) Wherever wherever they want to (laughs) go. If I'm reading, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying interns and young designers have a good education on how to think about design, but don't have good education on the tools and execution. Right. Like I've come across that you've seen yeah like there's a lot of really intelligent people that are really hungry to get into this industry and you know now it's sort of a career path that you can go down and you know a lot of people reach out like you know are you guys looking for new grads and a lot of it comes down to what does their portfolio of work look like and i think that's where there's a disconnect because student projects don't always translate well to sort of working day in and day out with an actual developer and product team and so I think there's a huge opportunity there to fill that need. But this seems like the biggest point of frustration for design students is like, how the fuck am I supposed to have anything else in my portfolio besides student projects? And like, yeah, I guess I'll do a side project of a to-do app or something. But like, yeah, how else do they demonstrate <laughs> that they can do this without, you know, they have like three years of design it's school tough. experience. Yeah, yeah. I think just build things, no matter what that means, just build something. Side projects. Yeah, do a side project. If you can't get any freelance work or a full-time gig, just create something. And I think that can help, you know, teach you the tools and sort of help you break down a specific problem set. And I think that's a good way to also apply that knowledge you, you sort of gain through that education and Really, what you want to demonstrate to a hiring manager is sort of your potential, your capacity to learn, your ability to collaborate. I think of, I made the daybook thing last January, and it's such a small little thing, but I feel like that would be fine in a portfolio. That'd be great. It's like, it's basically a glorified number counter. (laughs) But it, it, no, it's just a number counter. It's just a number. It's, it's not glorified. <laughs> it's just a perfect, uh, well-crafted, <laughs> um, beautiful, substantial, elegant number counter that I made from scratch, and it's perfect. But without the first parts, and then the number <laughs> counter. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but yeah, like it can be anything super small, and I think he copied someone else's idea. And I copied someone else's <laughs> idea. Uh, yeah. Maybe I should. And start. their design. Maybe I shouldn't put this in my portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> All the new grads and designers out there, maybe don't copy. You know what they say about great artists? He told them. You know what Steve Jobs says about great artists? Right. Yeah. Hmm. What keeps you up at night? What keeps me up at night? A lot of things. Uh-oh. Oh, no. You tired? You know, the buzzing sound from my refrigerator. Uh-huh. The cat. You got to get that fixed. It's a bad water filter. neighbor's cat. You know, I don't know. What keeps me up at night? That's a tough question. Mm -hmm. I have to think about that one. It is. Yeah. Yeah. What keeps you guys up at night? I keep waking up super thirsty. I don't know. (laughs) You're really taking the literal approach to that. Yeah. I've been taking a big old glass of water to bed with me every night. (laughs) Okay. That's what keeps me up at night. I get thirsty. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, I've been designing a board game in my spare time and I work on that till like 1am nice yeah I guess like the actual answer for me would be are we moving fast enough mm-hmm. hmm. so we're doing the startup thing it's like we the answer have... is always no yeah the answer is basically <laughs> always no but is it is it fast enough that I can justify going to sleep right now <laughs> like you know um that's what I think about. Or will going to sleep right now make me successful in the morning? Yeah. I think what keeps me up at night is just thinking about the team that I manage and 
their well-being and their happiness and you know as we scale our team how do we make sure that we preserve sort of that culture that we've built and collaborative nature of the team and you know i think i worry a lot about just everyone's happiness on my team because i really care about the people that i work with oh <laughs> How do I make people happy? Yeah. <laughs> Doubling a team size can really mess with that stuff. Right. Like, team culture is something that's really organic. It sort of evolves over time. But when you grow overnight, it's like, how do you preserve that? Right? Because you're adding so many new people into this mix. Should, I think you, should you even? Like, it should change to accommodate the new people as well, right? Like, Right. But that doesn't mean it shouldn't take a lot of its basics from what was there before yeah i don't know that's tricky i was listening to an interview with uh patrick collison who's Mm. the stripe guy uh another patrick big patrick week yeah yeah. big patrick week (laughs) um i think it was his interview with ezra klein uh but it was a great interview and and he asked about how did you think about preserving team culture as stripe has grown from just him and his brother to now i don't know how many employees they have and his response was like, I don't, well, I, I can't answer for him. You'd have to go listen. But it was loosely, as we grow, we have an increasing number of viewpoints on what the culture should be. And so it inherently changes as it grows because the viewpoints become more varied and refined or nuanced. And like we don't overthink about preserving what once was because now we have so many new viewpoints that that should change it in a mm-hmm. in a way that reflects the people that are actually there at that point in time. Yeah. Um, I thought that was interesting. And I totally butchered. He said it way better <laughs> than I could ever paraphrase. Patrick is a good speaker. Yeah, he's a good speaker. So anyways, food for thought. Interesting. Yeah. Um, well, we're, we're over an hour. So we're out of time. Oh, wow. Thanks for coming it's and hanging out. Yeah, man. thanks for coming and hanging out. Yeah, thanks, guys. It was great. Yeah. That was 219. Thanks to Patrick for coming and hanging out with us. Thanks to you for listening. And thanks to Webflow for sponsoring. Webflow is gearing up for a huge launch next week to take their platform for building production-ready websites without touching a line of code to the next level. It's called Interactions Version 2. It's going to make things like parallax scrolling, sequenced and scroll-based animations, and so much more possible without touching a single line of code ready to go live on whatever website you're working on. It's awesome. You can go get the sneak peek teaser content at webflow.com slash ix2. We're really excited about what they're working on. You should be too. Again, go check them out at webflow.com slash ix2. Thanks to our second sponsor, Figma, for helping us out. Go work with them. They need two product designers, a community manager, and a content strategist to write their tutorial. This team's crazy. They're working on the future of design tools, and they're doing it stupid fast and in really cool and exciting ways, especially with the new Live Embeds feature that they've been rolling out everywhere on the internet. You should go go help them do it. Having worked there, I cannot endorse the team highly enough. Like, they're doing amazing work and with amazing, amazing people. You should go work with them. Go get started at figma.com slash careers. Of course, tell them what we sent you. Uh, Good luck getting a new gig. This team's awesome. Can't recommend it enough. Yep. See you next week.